0: come to know him, that they would be able to enjoy him and worship him. And we've been seeing that this plot line, this nation's plot line in the Bible goes almost all the way back to the beginning with Genesis, and it continues on. And and last week, we particularly honed in on the way, as Andrew led us, and thinking about how Jesus emphasizes this kind of nation's centered focus, this mission in his own life and ministry. If you were here, you might remember We looked at places, some of these great commission passages, like Acts chapter 1, before he ascends to the Father and he tells the disciples to go to the ends of the earth. Or that passage, especially for our Baptist friends in here, you know it well, that passage from Matthew 28, when what does he tell people to do? To go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus says, I want you to go out, I want you to make followers of me. We assume that that means it would have started with them being told what we call the gospel, this news about Jesus. There are other Great Commission passages too, maybe the one that we just heard in our gospel reading a minute ago. Mark 16, 15. Listen again to what Jesus says. He says to the disciples, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. He says that in Mark, and then you might know what he says in Luke 24, verse 47. He's he's talking about the fact that it is um, thus it is written. He's talking about himself quote, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, in the Christ or in in his name, to whom all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So as we hear those things, as we think about what we saw last week, as we hear those scriptures, let's make sure that we don't miss this connection that's becoming pretty clear between the proclamation of the gospel and this mission that God's on, to reach the nations. Think about what Jesus said. Disciples, Christians, want you to go to the nations. Okay, I want you to go to the whole creation. And what are they supposed to do? At the heart of it is the gospel. They're to go and to make disciples, to, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in my name. And, and what happens is you put these together and the implication becomes obvious. Y'all, the only way it seems that the nations are going to be reached and that God's going to fulfill this mission is through the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel to all nations. The only way the mission's going to get finished is if the gospel is proclaimed to people from every tribe and tongue. Here's the question we want to ask today. Why? Why does that have to be the case? Why is it going to be that if he's going to reach the nations? Again, remember, unless, you, unless you're a man or woman of Israel, unless you're Jewish, uh, that applies to, to me, to you, to everyone in this room, to our friends, our family members, people um, that are in our neighborhood. Why is it be that if God's going to reach us and them as the nations, it's got to specifically involve the proclaiming of the gospel? And unless anyone in here, this might be you, is thinking, man, this is just kind of a vague um, or abstract theological question that we should leave to our Beeson students down the street. Let Let me just remind us what's really at stake with this question. And that's this. At its heart, do people actually have to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel in order to have a relationship with God? That's really what we're asking here. Should anybody, including us, expect that God is gonna accept people who don't put their faith in him, whether that's not putting their faith in him, uh, I'm sorry, whether that's accepting those people now or whether that's accepting them for eternity. Jesus's answer, as as hard as it is, and and with as many questions as we have, which we all do about how this works, his answer is no. How does that work? Why is that the case? Okay, we're gonna answer these things as we come to our passage in Romans 10 today, and we keep thinking about this work that God's doing with the nation. So we are, we're we're gonna come to this text, this passage, with these two very simple questions about proclaiming the gospel, just telling other people about Jesus, who he is, what he's done. Okay, we're gonna start one with the why, the why of gospel proclamation. Why is it necessary why does it have to be proclaimed? And then we're going to go to number two, the how. The how of gospel proclamation. How, how exactly does this work? What does it look like in detail? Okay, very simple questions. Why and how? And then we're going to see how, again, is this connected to this thing that God is doing over the course of history, reaching out to men and women from every tribe and every language. So let's start with the why. Why? why is it that it seems the gospel has to be proclaimed to all nations if God's going to reach the nations? And as as Paul's going to show us in Romans 10, and in this, this sounds very um, direct and very bold, but this is what he says. He says it has everything to do with the judgment of God. And just a quick re- refresher for anyone that has maybe, maybe you've not read much of Romans before, maybe you've never read Romans at all, okay, by the time you get to the 10th chapter in Romans, uh, Paul's been saying something that to us might not sound very unusual to any of the Jews that would have been reading it, he would have sounded crazy, and that is, even though they knew that they had historically had this special relationship with the God of Israel, okay, now, with the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, with the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, okay? And through faith in him, most importantly, he was saying, anybody can have access to a relationship with this God. Anybody, including especially the Gentiles. And it's in this context why we're reminded it's so important that the gospel has to be proclaimed. Let me just stress this. Paul's Paul's not saying that there's no... Difference at all between the Jews and the Gentiles. He wasn't an idiot. <laughs> he, he, he knew there especially were di- cultural differences. But he says, in spite of all the ways that these two groups of people are different, there is something that they have in common. Is That is, they now have a common access to God through faith. We've talked about that a little bit in the past as we looked at Galatians. They have a common access to God through faith, but that's necessary because there's something else that they have in common. All Jews and Gentiles. And that is, they're all equally deserving, he stresses in this book, of what we would call the judgment of God. Now, I just want to say, um, judgment of God's not an easy thing to talk about as a pastor, as a Christian. And, and I just want to add, um, if, if you happen to be someone that's uh, visiting today, maybe you're one of the people that are watching online for the first time today. You're, you might even be wondering like, what did I get into visiting this church today? Okay, let, let me tell you, what you got into is this is a church family that doesn't skirt the hard questions. And we take the scriptures seriously. And when you look at the scriptures, you see that it happens to talk about this thing that is God's good and righteous judgment a lot. So Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. And if you go to the first chapter of Romans, so we're going to get to that 10th chapter in just a minute. But if you go to the first chapter, what you start to see is Paul saying, yes, God is real and he is holy and he's righteous and he's 100% committed to those things. Which by the way, that's really good news. Do do any of us want to bow down to or worship a God? Or you could even just imagine any sort of a judge that's 50% committed to being good. Or 75% committed. We want want someone that is committed to justice and fairness 100% of the time. That's what he is. He's 100% committed to those things. And by virtue of being the definition of those things, that means he is 100% committed to himself. And by definition, he has to be against the things that are against him. So let's just take one more minute here before we get into Romans 10. This is specifically what Paul's talking about in Romans 118 when he talks about what's called the wrath of God. So so just listen, if you don't have it in front of you, for the wrath of God, Paul says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God, obviously, just talking about, or straightforward, God's righteous anger. Now, I know, I've, I've been here in my own past, um, there are some of us that really struggle with the idea of a God that could ever get angry. And you, you may have heard people say, you may have even said yourself at times, you know, I, I could only believe, um, I, I just can't believe in a God that would ever get angry. I only believe in a God of love and a, and a God that is only loving. And, and I, I think on one level, we all understand what somebody means when they say that. But at the same time, we've got to ask, just to go back to what we were saying a second ago, do we really want a God that never gets angry ever about anything? I mean, think, think for example, do we want a God that when he looks at us and he sees examples of greed, of injustice, of abuse, of people being exploited, do we want to look at a God who looks at these things and just shrugs his shoulders and says, well, you know what, I don't want to take any sides that's not what we want. We want a God that is going to call spade a spade, that is going to distinguish between right and wrong. We want a a God that gets fired up about things that are wrong. Now, here's the problem. That means in light of our own brokenness, he also can get fired up about us because none of us lives the way that we're called to. You know, we use this illustration. I've said it here from up front sometimes with our high school kids sometimes. Um, Imagine well we start out our service, first of all, saying, hearing those words from Jesus, the summary of the law, that we should love God with all of our, you know, our heart, um, soul, and mind, and that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, And we know we're called to do this, not just in the things that we do, in our thoughts. Is there anyone here that would claim that they have perfectly lived that way all their life? And is there anyone here that would be comfortable with showing up to the stadium in Auburn or in Tuscaloosa and seeing all of your thoughts put up on the Jumbotron? For all to see. Nobody feels that way. None of us have lived that way, and for that reason, Paul's just saying because he's such a good God, he's got every right to judge us. He's got every right. Now I know, some of you are probably thinking, "Wow, that, that's that's a heck of a way to start." It's a lot of talk about the judgment of God. Why why we talked about that when we haven't even got to the heart of our passage yet here in Romans 10? And here's why. The reason that we took a couple minutes to think about that is is unless we can understand and feel even the weight of that, the burden of that, the angst of that, it is not going to make sense when we get to this passage here and we read Paul using the language that he does in Romans 10, specifically about people being, quote, saved. Some of y'all come from backgrounds where you're, you're, you're used to hearing people say, I was saved this time or that time. And you might wonder, what exactly do they mean? Let's look at some of the ways that he talks about it here in this passage. So if you've got, you've got it in front of you, look at verse 1. Paul's talking about his fellow Jews, and look at what he says. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Jews, is that they might be saved. That, y'all, brothers, my desire, my longing for my kinsmen for the people that I come from, is that they might be rescued from the judgment of God that I've been writing about in this book. That's one example. Another place, if you look ahead, verse eight, look again at that word. He, at the beginning here, he's quoting a passage from Deuteronomy 30. He says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. And then he continues, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And then he says again, verse 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So over and over again, Paul is just restating this assumption that he's been working with through the book that God is good. He is a holy and loving God. We have not honored them the way that we are called to. Because of that, it is totally fair for him to respond in his righteous anger. And this is something that all people need to be rescued from. And I just want to add this. Just in case anybody thinks that Paul is like the the fire and brimstone preacher and that Jesus is just the lovey-dovey prophet that holds sheep and and just, you know, whispers um, kind words into everyone's ear. Jesus also uses this language of, of people being saved. Have you noticed that in the Gospels? This is... Um, talking in, in John 5, 34, he's having this debate with some Jews about his teaching. And he says to them, you know, ask yourself in this passage, why has he been saying these things? I say these things to you that you might be saved. Where he goes on in, in Mark 16, 16. So this is that great commission passage we were looking at just a couple of minutes ago. This is from what was shared earlier. He's talking about, again, the need to believe the gospel. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Again, I know this is heavy stuff, but this is probably worth um, just pausing here for a second and pointing out. One of the most important questions that any of us, and it doesn't matter whether or not you're a Christian, um, anybody, or I should say everybody has to think about this question. One of the most important questions anybody could ever ask is, not only is God real, but is the judgment of God real? Is the judgment of God a reality? Because uh, the way that we answer that question is going to affect a huge part of our life, and and simply just the way that we go about life. There are different ways that we can respond to that. On one hand, we could say, no, he's not real. Uh, The judgment of God's not real. And it's true, we can say that, but if that's if that's the case, we got to ask, do we really live that way? Do we really live that way as if there is no judgment, there is no judge, and, and if so, why is it when we look around us, we have our own standards that we expect people and the world around us to live to, live up to? Why is it that we long for these things like fairness and justice? You can't make an argument for these things in our, in our government, in our culture, in the world around us. If there is no ultimate judge who gets to make the call about what's right and wrong, if you've read Mere Christianity, you know C.S. Lewis talks about that. He says talks about people waiting in line somewhere and someone jumps in front of someone else and that person says, well, that's not fair. He says, where's that comment come from? We have a sense that there is or there are standards and that there is a judge. So it's, it's really hard to live as if there is none, although we can say that. The other way to answer that question is to say, there is a judge. There is a God, and he is gonna judge the world in some way. And if that's the case, if that's how we would answer that question, then we gotta ask ourselves this. On what account is he going to base his judgment of us? Is it, on one hand, gonna be, be based on the, the um, zero-sum game of our our good deeds and our bad deeds and the things that we've done, the things that we haven't done, the things that we've thought. Is that going to be the case? Because if you read earlier again in Romans, it's bad news if that's going to be what happens because all of us, use the language, fall short. Or is it going to be seeing not our own, as you could say, or as is often said, kind of blemished record, is it going to be looking at us and seeing the perfect record of who? Jesus, because we've put our faith in him, or as it says in verse nine again, if you confess in your mouth, if you call on his name, if you believe in his heart, you will be what? Saved. Verse 10 says, justified. You'll be able to stand before him without excuse. You won't, uh, you won't have any sense of, of shame. And so having looked at just those things for a second, okay, let's, let's bring this back now To this question about the nations. Why is it that the gospel's got to be proclaimed if God's going to fulfill this mission to the nations? And the reason is because when it comes to the nations, there's not a single person in the world that is from a single tribe or a a single language that can stand innocent before a perfect and holy God. Nobody can do that. The only way it's possible this is a hard thing to say, but the only way it's possible is by hearing about Jesus Christ and putting one's faith in Jesus Christ. Again, that's that's why Jesus says what he says in Mark 16, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his my name to all nations. That's gotta happen. A response in faith to that has to happen. So that's that's the first point of this time this morning. That's the why of a gospel proclamation for the nations to come to him. They first have to be forgiven by him. But now having looked at the why, let's just take a couple second and ask this question of the how in this passage. So, so how is it again, we know that anyone can go from being under the common judgment of God to, to being in relationship with him. We know it's the proclamation of the gospel. But what Paul then seems to do and bear with me here on this analogy. It's almost like Paul takes the proclamation of the gospel and puts it under a microscope that's hooked up to like a giant TV that we can all look at and we're able to look at it in closer detail. And let's notice what he says, okay? Well, how, does he, how does he describe it? We're gonna start in verse 13 in just a second. Right before that, Paul, again, has been saying, through faith, this relationship with God enjoying him, getting to praise him. All the things that we've talked about in this series so far, the things that we were made for, the things that God's going to do in the nations, this has been made available to everybody. That's a really important word in this passage, everyone. Verse 11, he says, everyone who believes in him won't be put to shame. It's it's alluding to the final judgment there. you put your faith in Jesus Christ, everybody who put their faith in him doesn't have to be put, won't be put to shame. Verse 12, he says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentiles. He is bestowing his riches again on everyone. This is not limited. He's doing this generously for anyone who believes. And then look at what it says in verse 13. This is the, the, the most significant part of what we're looking at today. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? We're going to stop there for a moment. So how's this process work? If we're, again, imagining the microscope, we got everything up on the TV in front of us. How does it work? We know how it ends. Okay, it ends, verse 13, for everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. If someone's going to go from being guilty to 100% innocent through the faith in Jesus Christ, okay, who took on all of our guilt. They're going to have to call on his name. They're going to have to call on his name. Right? And this is, so we're starting here with a profession, a profession of faith. This is really important. Remember, um, well, let me, let me actually refer to verse nine here because this is what he's talking about. What we just said it a moment ago. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what's going on here as we think about this, this profession? This is not um, a, a statement where the power is in the words of themselves. This is not like, so y'all remember the stories of during prohibition, the speakeasies, and people would go to the door and they would either have the password, uh, they would say the right thing, or they would knock on the door. The kingdom of God is not just saying words alone or having the right knock and it magically opens. It's grounded in something else, he says, and that's faith. This is a profession that is an overflow of faith. Look at verse 14. And how will they call on him? How will they profess him in whom they've not believed? And then what Paul does as he continues is he goes on with these four rhetorical questions. What are they? How can they call on him if they don't, Believe in him, okay? Obviously, the answer is there that they can't. And then as he goes on to 14, and how can they believe in him? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? So you can't call on him if you don't believe in him. You can't believe in him if you haven't heard of him. And how are you gonna hear of him? Keeps going to 14. You can't hear of him if nobody tells you, which is why he says, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? Here's where it's really worth stopping and just and just adding this parenthetical. When Paul says preaching, he is he's not talking about preachers. He's not talking about an office per se or a, a, a role. He is talking about the act of proclamation. We're, we're just talking about sharing about Jesus. And we all know there are some things that we share with people that are such big news that the only word that makes sense to talk about sharing that kind of news is a proclamation. Okay, some of us, let me say this, some of us grew up in Christian circles where people would say something about the good news or the gospel to us, and we were like, wow, that's the people going a little overboard in religion. Those are those people that are getting really into it. We don't want to go too far. You ever realize the only way that you can believe it's true to be going overboard in that sense is if you don't believe what Paul's already been saying and what Jesus has said, that there is not. If you don't believe that God's real and that there's not gonna be a judgment, because if those things are true, it's, it's no overstatement to say that this is great news, that this is, this is news that should be heralded. This is like, when I say that, um, th- this sort of news and why the word gospel is only or I should say proclamations fitting. We could ask ourselves, what person learns that their football team has won the national championship? And as they find out on their phone, and there's a friend that went to the same school, mumbles it to them. What do they do? They shout at the top of their lungs. I was walking through Crestline two years ago. UVA had just won the the national championship in basketball. It's where I went to college. This black suburban drives past me, past our family, front window goes down, a fist comes out and does a fist pump and yells "Wahoo!" wah at the top of their lungs. That's, the, that's what we're talking about, proclamation. There is good news. It was even bigger news after we were just lost in the first round of the tournament. Some of y'all remember the year before. This is a big deal. Or more seriously, what, what doctor mumbles the news as they tell their patient that has been diagnosed with terminal cancer that the MRI they had done or the blood work that was just run has come up completely clear of cancer. That is not something that's mumbled. There there are some things that we hear and learn that are of such consequence that the only way that we can share about them is through through heralding, through sharing. That's why it's talking about the the preaching of the gospel. Again, this isn't just up to to people wearing this stuff. This is for all Christians. And then just to go back to the passage, how's anybody going to tell them unless somebody sends them? How are they to preach unless they're sent? Now, it seems like Paul would have to have at least two kinds of being sent in mind as he said this. Because on one hand, we know Paul literally believed that Christians needed to be physically sent to places in the same way that we think about missionaries today. We know that, pardon me, he was one. We know that he took people with him, sent people places. He raised uh, financial support for people. So we we have to know that he's thinking about sending in that sense there. But we Um, We also know that there's another sense in which he had to be thinking about this. And this was just not sent by someone that we're in ministry with or maybe a a, a home church. We know he has to be thinking about being sent by God. Because that's how Paul understood his own calling, isn't it? Do you remember what happens in Acts 9? He's on that road to Damascus, he has that experience. Jesus comes and, and talks to him. And at the same time, Jesus is talking to somebody else. And that's this disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Who only knew Paul to be a crazy person, or Saul, I should say, at that time. And and what does what Jesus tell Ananias about why he's to go to Saul? Jesus says in, in Acts 9:15, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. It also could be translated to the nations and the and kings and the children of Israel. So God's the one that's going to send Paul. He has this specific sense of being sent by God. Remember though, he also receives this at a time when he's not even a Christian. We know there's another sense in which all of us as Christians know that we've been sent. And that's because these words that we've been looking at that Jesus says to the disciples, some of his last words to them, go and make disciples of all nations. Go preach the gospel to all creation. We know that includes us. There's no way the great commission has been rescinded. There's no way people from every tribe and tongue have already come to believe in him. So we, we know it applies to us. And if we can just imagine ourselves maybe for a moment, then stepping back from this figurative microscope as, as we've been looking at what he's talking about here in this process of, of gospel proclamation. Again, how does God say that he's gonna reach the nations? What's he gonna do? He's gonna send Christians. So he's gonna send people like, like you, like me. In some ways you could say he's gonna actually reach the nations, and then send the nations. So he's going to send people, and then what are they going to do? They're going to share the gospel in some form, okay, so that people can hear, so that people can believe, so that those people can call in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's how he's going to do it. And so that those people Can be included in this mission that we've said he's on of bringing together people from every different people group in the world that they might be able to know and enjoy him forever. That's how it's going to happen. It's our second point this morning, the how of gospel proclamation. And and so here's here's how I want to end. I just want to say this: um, if you're either visiting with us for the first time, or I don't know your own background, including you know, we now have people that watch. from a lot of different places online. If, if, if you happen to be someone for whom that last part right there, um, this experience of, of knowing that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for the first time, that you have experienced these things, that you will be included in this, this gathered community of people knowing and worshiping God. If, if, if you don't know if you're there yet, here's what I want to say. If you have any sense today that that's what you desire or you long for, there's a couple things that you can do, Um, and you've got at least three options. One, when I finish this sermon, I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer, and if if you would like to take that step, you're welcome to join me. That that probably does not apply to the vast majority of people in the room. It may apply to some, so we're going to pray. Also, speaking of prayer, if this is something that you want to think about more or, or simply have someone pray for you for, you can come to one of the prayer teams During communion, a lot of people go to our prayer teams and they're just asking for for various needs that they have. But you can also, if you want, go to one of the prayer teams and just say, hey, I'm really, I'm wanting this. I don't know what else to say. Can you pray for me? That's fine. Love to pray for you. Or in as it sounds, if you'd like, you can just grab one of those visitor cards in the chair in front of you. And you can just put your name on it, your contact info. And just simply that you'd like to talk to someone fold it, putting in the offering basket that comes to buy in a second. Those are totally anonymous. The only people that see those are myself and our administrator, Sabrina. So you can do that. For others of you, I know, and again, this applies to the majority of us, you are confident that you've experienced that definitively, that that you have professed and that's based in um, hearing the gospel. I want to ask for a second, do we recognize that this process that Paul's been talking about in Romans 10 and in 13 through 15 of, of how we've come to this place and really going in the language of Paul, from death to life, do we recognize it has involved someone in some form engaging us with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And it might be, uh, it might be parents that taught us about Jesus. It might be a mentor. It might be a pastor. It might be a teacher. If you were here last week, you remember Andrew sharing about his teacher, Miss Clark. It could be an author of a Christian book that you read. It could have been Billy Graham on the TV 50 years ago. Is that too long? Several decades ago. That you you just felt the need to respond. But that is God's architecture of gospel proclamation. It is to be spoken. It is to be shared. And I just want to ask us, think about who that is. I know for me, it involved people like, man, it was took a lot of people to get me into the kingdom. Will Green, Tad Sellers, Ross Bird. I could share a lot more names. Uh, Men and women that had an instrumental role in that. And let's just take five minutes sometime today. No matter what you're doing, when it is, you could be pumping gas, just driving home, maybe just getting ready to go to bed tonight. Let's give thanks for whoever that person was. Whoever may have had the, the biggest role that heard this call and was faithful. They didn't run away from it, but they pulled aside me. They pulled aside of you, or they just spent time listening on a regular basis. And then with that person in mind, let's pray this. God, who is one person in my life that I am confident, or I suspect right now, does not know you in this way. And you're wanting me to be faithful and obedient and to reach out to them in the same way. That someone reached out to me. Who might that person be? We're gonna think more next week about how this looks very concretely, both on a local level and on on a far, greater level, uh, globally. It's going to be World Missions Sunday next week in our diocese. We're going to think about that. But who's, who's the one person that you sense? I don't, I don't. This isn't just a nice way to end a sermon. I mean, literally, think about this. Who's the one person that God might be wanting to send you to so that you can share, so that they can hear, that they can respond in faith and friends ultimately that they too can call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Oh yeah, let me pray. I'm gonna pray now. So, Father, we all come from different backgrounds here. Some of us grew up in the church. Some of us have known you our whole lives. Some of us just the last couple of years, some of us might not even have confidence that we do for any man or woman or child in this room that's in that place. Lord, I pray that right now we acknowledge Lord, if they can join me in this, that we believe that you really did live, that you really did die, and that you really were raised from the dead, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, I pray for this individual, if, if they be here or anyone that's watching online, Lord, that you might take hold of their life in the way that you are directing all of history and lead them in a new path of wholeness and joy and life in you that we here as a church family know is available to anyone that puts their faith in Jesus. Lord, please, would you do that? Lord, we pray that the rest of this time as we gather here to enjoy you would bring glory to you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen.